0: you get me today. (laughs) So, (laughs) sorry. Um, We are going to be looking at the book of Esther, which is difficult for me because I've been teaching a class on Esther since January. So, I have a lot of things in my brain (laughs) and only like 35 minutes. So, um, That's the challenge. The challenge wasn't me thinking of things to say. The challenge was saying, what am I going to say and what am I going to not say? But this morning we are looking at the book of Esther, and we're continuing this this sermon series that we've been in for quite some time. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that I am rounding out the the Old Testament here. So um, I'm the last one in the Old Testament. Uh, and So we are kind of covering... So last week, Pastor Matt went over a little bit about... Some of the, the Jews who decided to go back home to Judah after the exile was over and kind of some of the struggles that they went through. We're looking at the others, some of the Jews that stayed uh, behind in some of the places that they were living in and um, just looking at some of the struggles that they were having and some of the things that they are put through uh, because of those struggles. But just to remind us of where we are at, um, so the plan is the, the Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. And so knowing this, we have kind of four different coordinates that we look at throughout this sermon series. First, we have the people. So who is the story about? We have the place. Where is their home? The presence. Where can they meet with God and their purpose? What is God asking them to do? And for that, we're going to turn to Jeremiah 29, and we're going to read a few verses there. Um, And so let's let's do that just now. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7 says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you too will prosper. And I also want to read verses 10 and 11, which might sound somewhat familiar. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So as we look at those, those verses there, we see some things that God um, might be commanding them to do, um, but knowing that we're reading the book of Esther, okay, we don't see the characters within Jeremiah 29, but we know some of the characters. So who is the story about? Well, the story is going to be about Mordecai, Esther, but then the entire, entirety of the Jews. it be about all of them. But we're going to specifically be looking at a couple of these Jewish people um, who are living in a certain place. Now, talking about the place with Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews, where is their home? That's, that's a good question. Well, their, their home is essentially Judah. Right? That's the promised land, and that's where, they are, that's where their home is. But some are choosing not to go home. Some are choosing not to go back to Judah. Now, in terms of presence, where can they meet with God? Well, they can't. (laughs) There's not really a specific presence of God. And part of Matt's sermon last week was looking at, you know, how they just, they tried so, so, so hard to bring that presence back to where they thought it was going to be. And they still struggled to do just that. But especially for the Jews who are living elsewhere, there is nowhere that they can specifically go meet with God. Now, I am, I'm just a pastor. I can't control God. I can't say, no, God can't meet them wherever they're at. God can obviously do that. But in terms of the people being able to just go somewhere and meet with God, they cannot do that. Now, their purpose. What did God tell them to do? Well, from Jeremiah 29, it looks like that he says, trust me, trust God, trust me that I will come back for you. I'm not sending you into exile and saying, I'm done with you, and moving on to someone else. He's saying, you are going into exile. Be patient. Wait for me. I will be back for you. Trust me. And then follow me. Follow God. Notice how he didn't say in Jeremiah 29, yeah, go live elsewhere, and then do whatever you want to from there. Follow their gods, do whatever you want. No, he says, go elsewhere and still be my people. Still have families, still build homes, still do these things. You're still my people, follow me. You're just living somewhere else. So trust me and follow me. And so that's where we're left at with the book of Esther. And as we've been going through this class that I'm teaching since January, we keep coming to the conclusion that there's more questions that come up than answers within this book. And there's a specific reason why, because you know, we're humans and we love rules and we love you know, just tell me what to do and tell me where I need to be at this time and tell me all of that. And Esther is kind of a book where it's like there's a lot of unknowns within it. And so as we've been going about this story, we say, man, I'm just left with more questions than I have answers. And so we're kind of going to reach that conclusion with this sermon. I'm sorry that I can't tell you this is a hard line answer and you go do this and you'll be fine. I'm just going to tell you, you know, there's murky waters out there. There's a lot of gray area, and it's difficult to determine some things. Let's get into the story of Esther and what a story that it is. There's so much within it that we're going to be cutting a lot of stuff that I wish I could share about. But we're going to start in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, just to kind of set the image of where we're at. So, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. Where is this specific story taking place, right? Not where is the the Jews' home. Where is this specific story taking place? Well, it's happening in Susa, the capital of Persia. Now, the Persians are the empire who uh, conquered the Babylonians and then take over rule over the land um, that the Babylonians were ruling over. Now, if you remember, the Babylonians are the ones who actually uh, were the ones that conquered Judah, and the Jews were sent into exile um, under the Babylonian rule, and so the Persians come along, they conquer um, Babylon. This should be kind of a little bit of a review. Pastor Matt kind of went over this briefly, Um, but Persia conquers Babylon and then um, says essentially to the Jews, you can go home and you can rebuild your temple. And so the interesting about that is, though, that the Persian rulers aren't, aren't saying to, to the Jews, hey, you can go home, and now you're an independent nation again. They're saying, you can go home, and you can rebuild your temple, but we're still ruling over you. We still uh, have dominion over you, essentially. And so it, it kind of creates this interesting situation where there's Jews kind of going back and forth saying, well, we can go home now, we can rebuild the temple, so we should go home, right? Like, is, is that the rule? I don't know. But then there's some Jews that are saying, maybe that, I don't know if there is a rule that we go home, even though, you know, Israel isn't, an, uh, Judah isn't an independent nation again, yet. And so we get this interesting kind of dynamic of Jews staying where they're at and Jews going home. And we saw last week that some of the Jews that went home, they didn't necessarily make the right decisions, they didn't necessarily make good decisions, And we're going to see this week is that some of these Jews that stay stay back behind, they aren't going to make the best decisions either. And so there's kind of this this pull back and forth between following the rules to a T and not following the rules, and still, how does God work in and through his people and for his people? But looking at where this story is taking place, so I have a little bit of an image here. So this is the Persian Empire at this time, and you can see it's very, very large. <laughs> it stretches from India, and Kush is where about Egypt is. So it spans over several modern-day nations. And I was looking at a map upstairs just before this, just to look, at, just compare it. It's about the, the width of the United States of America. So it's very, very large. And you think about in a time where their primary mode of transportation and, and getting messages to places was by either walking or riding a horse or riding another animal, right? It would take forever to get one message to the other end of the, of the empire, right? So I was thinking about this. I could send an email right now and someone in New York could get it. Like, that's crazy, right? I, I'm all the way on the other coast. But this is a huge, huge empire. But also notice that Judah is still a part of this empire. They are still being ruled over by the Persians. Now, for the sake of today's story, we notice that Susa is kind of in the middle of everything, right? It's very, in the very center of this entire empire, and that's where the capital is of, of Persia, and that's where this story takes place. But our first point here in the story is that some Jews are still living where they put down roots. Some Jews are still living where they put down roots, because if we notice in Jeremiah 29, God says, like, actually build up your families here. Don't just go there and just hang out for a while and then come back. Go and actually, like, live out your life there, Build homes, plant gardens. Gardening takes time. Plant those gardens, eat what comes from those gardens, right? So some Jews are still living where they put down roots. And now let's be introduced to a couple of those Jews who are still living where they have put down roots in Susa. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That's not just in there, that actually matters to the story. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So we, have, we are introduced to kind of the two main characters of the story, Mordecai and Esther. And if we were to rewind and look at, you know, kind of the end of chapter, chapter 1, we see that the king is a drunkard, and he makes a rash decision, gets rid of his, uh, his, his queen Vashti. Um, it's a very wild situation that happens, um, but essentially he gets rid of his queen, and now in chapter 2 he's like, I need a new queen, and that's where we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Um, because Esther is kind of going to be a part of this kind of twisted beauty contest that happens where a bunch of young women are gathered for the king, and they are given beauty treatments over several, several months, if not years, and they're kind of beautied up, and then they spend a the night with the king, which is not necessarily PG like people tend to believe sometimes, but um, that's beside the point, point. and Esther ends up winning that contest. <laughs> Esther becomes queen. Queen of Persia, the, the huge empire that we just looked at, the huge kingdom, she becomes queen. But we also get these two verses here, verses 10 and 11. It says Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. And so something that we find out in these verses here is that some Jews are struggling to follow God. Now from these two verses one might be asking how 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 do we know that? Well if she and Mordecai they're both hiding their identity at this point as Jewish people, there are specific Jewish laws that they are either not following or following that they should be following or not following. Right? Sorry that might have been a confusing statement there, right? But they might be doing things that go against what they should be doing as Jewish people. Right? They might be in the, in the palace eating things that they should not be eating. They might not be practicing things like you know, prayer times or whatever else it should be that they should be actually doing. So they're not actually following all of the Jewish laws. All because they want to hide their identity. Now one might say, well, this is for you know, personal protection, right? If they come out as Jewish, then they're going to be you know, ridiculed, attacked, you know, whatever else, right? That still doesn't change the fact that they are hiding their identity, and that's causing them to kind of infringe on who they are as Jews. And so some Jews are struggling to follow God. I mean, these are believers who are living in a world that is not believer-friendly at this point. Right? There are a lot of Jews who went back home to Judah and said, yeah, we're going to live here because this is home and we can live as Jews here. But some Jews, and notice how Mordecai, he seems to actually work in the citadel of Susa. He actually probably has a pretty prominent position in this, in this place. And so he's actually kind of gotten some personal gain from not coming out as a Jew, right? Now, the story, this story is interesting because it actually is intertwined with another story um, that we actually covered in a sermon uh, a little bit ago. And so we're going to kind of go back and read that real quick. But the, the next point on your outline here is that someone not listening to God's command catches up with the Jews. And this is a really interesting intersection of uh, two different stories. And if you notice when Mordecai was being introduced, right, Mordecai, it was shared who his, uh, who his ancestors are, right, who he's a descendant of specifically. And it seems as though that the author is actually doing this intentionally because he's actually going to be pitted up against someone a little bit later on in the story. But who is this person that didn't listen to God's command and ends up catching up with the Jews? Well, we're going to look at that real quick. First Samuel 15, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now, there's a lot of craziness that happens in this brief story, and if you want to go back and listen to that sermon or uh, kind of the, po- the podcast episode that we did kind of covering a little bit of this too, um, Pastor Matt actually does a really good job at unpacking the violence that happens here and all of that. But I don't have time to really unpack that, okay? So if you're interested in learning more about that, um, rewind a little bit and go back to that episode. But what we need to know for the story here is that Saul was supposed to destroy everything to do with the Amalekites. Right? The Amalekites attack uh, Israel as they come up out of Egypt in their most vulnerable place as a people. And God essentially says, I will remember this. And so he tells Saul, go destroy everything to do with the Amalekites. But notice how Saul didn't do that. Saul spared King Agag and also some of the beneficial things that they had, right, the the sheep, the cattle, the goats, all those things. And so then in Esther 3, we get this. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hemadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So here's where these two people are pitted against each other. You have Mordecai, and we saw his ancestors. Now we have Haman and his ancestors. And Haman is a descendant of King Agag. And so, this is going to catch up with the, with the Jews at this point. But I want to take a brief look again at Jeremiah 29 and just use that as a lens as we move further in the story. It says, "...also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile." Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now let's keep that verse as a lens as we read these next few verses, because I want to, I want to ask a question. I'm just proposing a question at this point. This isn't me making a statement about anything, but this is a question. So Esther 3, 2 through 7. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor Uh, pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Notice now Mordecai is saying, I am Jewish. He's identifying as um, his people. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the purr, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar." So in this story, just breaking down all that just happened, these five verses here, Mordecai says, I am Jewish, and I am not bowing to Haman because I know who he is. He is, a son, he is a descendant of these people that I know are enemies of my people, and I am not bowing down to him. He makes that decision. And that decision leads to Haman getting angry and saying, I don't want to just kill Mordecai. I want to kill all of the Jews which is a bit of a leap, but that's still the decision he makes. And so in this moment, right, Mordecai makes a little decision of, I'm not bowing to Haman, and it causes all of God's people to be in jeopardy. Because if we remember, Judah itself, all these Jews who went home to Judah, they're still a part of the Persian Empire. And so when Haman says, I'm going to kill all the Jews, all of the Jews are included in that. Whether they went home to rebuild the temple or they stayed where they're at, They are all in jeopardy. This isn't just limited to the Jews who are still in the capital of Susa. This is all of the Jews who are in jeopardy. And so this this moment for Saul catches up with them. But remember that question I want to pose to you, is what Mordecai did right or wrong? (laughs) And again, that's just a question because I don't know if I see in Scripture that they're is a right or wrong solution in that moment for Mordecai. Because scholars believe that Haman, being a descendant of Agag, is wearing something that is a callback to the Amalekites. And so there's this symbol that he's wearing where Mordecai looks at this person and says, I am not going to bow to that because that just disregards all of my people. I am identifying as a Jewish person now. And I'm going to be public with that. And I'm not bowing to Haman. But still his decision has terrible, terrible effects on all of the Jews. And now we read this story knowing the terrible effects that it has on the Jews. But imagine Mordecai in this moment. He has no idea what's about to unfold. He just makes a simple decision of, I'm not bowing to this person. And one might say, well, Jeremiah 29 clearly says you must seek peace in in the place you're living. I think it's a little bit more complicated than just that. It's a little bit complicated. It's a a murky decision. There's a lot of gray area in that decision. But nonetheless, we get to the point where the Jewish people, they need God. The Jewish people need God. They are in a situation because Haman figures out a way to actually get this done. And when he casts lots, like rolls dice, and it lands on the 12th month, like that's when it's going to happen. The Jews are now signed away to die, essentially, all of them. Because anyone that's around them can attack them and take whatever the Jews have. And so the Jewish people, they need God. Now turning to chapter 4 here. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are on Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So we have this moment where Esther is saying, Listen, gather everyone that you can. I'm going to do this, and my attendants, who might not even be Jewish at this point, are going to do this, and we're going to fast we are going to fast because I am going to go before the king, and guess what? If he doesn't want to see me in this moment, I will be put to death, but I'm going to do it. And so what we miss in the, in the first part of the chapter four is this whole conversation that happens between Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai's like, you got to go, and Esther's like, I can't, I'll be killed. And Mordecai's like, you got to go. And then Esther finally reaches the point where she's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, but first, let's all fast. I'm going to do it. My attendants are going to do it. Everyone you know, Mordecai, get them to do it. And Mordecai goes out and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, this next point, you can disagree with me if you'd like to, but this is what I think is happening here. I think that God's people show a sign of reliance on him. I think that God's people are saying, we're in a situation that we cannot change. We're in a situation that is, is not good and is scary, and we can't do this all on our own, and we need, we need you, God. We need you. And for them, this must be a really, I mean, this is a very significant situation, but they must be feeling this, just the weight of everything that's going on. And for, for Esther, she's, she's got to be feeling most of that weight because she's the one that's, I'm going before the king. If he doesn't want to see me, then I'm, I'm done for. I'm gone. Well, we're going to take a, a look at a few uh, different chapters and moments that happen within these chapters and just see, see a little bit of what's going on in these chapters. So, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So, he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. And in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Kind of a you know a selfish thing to do a little bit there. Read me all the things that I've done. That's cool. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bixana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So in these first two moments, we see that God is kind of, I believe, working behind the scenes a little bit, right? Now Esther is someone who is apparently just a really good person to hang out with. People just like Esther. She's a pleasant person to be around because she goes into the king's harem and, and people, the, the, the eunuchs around her and all the attendants around her, they just start to like her and she, they're like, she's a cool person. And then she like wins the king over and like the king just likes Esther and everybody likes Esther in, this, in the first couple chapters of this book, it seems. Now, I, I believe that, you know, God probably had a hand in kind of shaping who Esther is and her personality and how she is a pleasant person to be around. But then also kind of guiding Xerxes in the decision to, to make her queen out of everyone. She makes a, a wild decision, right? When the women go to hang out with Xerxes for an evening, um, they get to take whatever they want with them to him. And Esther's like, I don't need anything other than what you tell me I need, and I'll, I'll go. And she's the one that ends up winning over the king. And then in chapter 6, right, on the very, very night that Haman decides, I'm going to put Mordecai up on a 75-foot pole, the very night that Haman decides that and is on his way to the palace to say, we need to uh, kill Mordecai, the king can't sleep, and he has the record of his reign read to him. And guess what's in that record? Mordecai saved the king's life. So not only was Mordecai in the right place at the right time to hear these two officers saying we're going to kill the king, but also that story is read to the king when he can't sleep. Like, I mean, that's if that's a coincidence, that's the craziest coincidence that's almost ever happened for the Jews because that ends up kind of changing the whole story from there. But I don't think that's just coincidence. I think God has a hand in this. And so that very night, Haman is on his way. He gets to King Xerxes, and King Xerxes says, well what should I do for the one who pleases the king the most? And Haman being Haman is like, that's got to be me. So give him the king's royal robe, let him wear it. Give him the king's horse, let him ride it. And parade him through town. And King Xerxes is like, great, do that for Mordecai. (laughs) And King King Haman in that moment is like, wow, how did this turn so quickly? But that's the coincidence of all coincidences, or that's God interworking in the mix. But in chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of, the, of fine linen. And the city of Susa had held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king uh, came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews." with feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. And so what we see is that God worked behind the scenes and delivered his people. God worked behind the scenes and delivered his people. It's not, just, it's not all that simple in the story of Esther, and if you'd like to ask me questions about it, I'd love to answer it, but for the sake of time, I just don't have time to go into how it all happens and you know, how it all unfolds. It's a crazy story. Uh, all of it's a crazy story, and I'd love to chat with you more about it. But for the sake of just the simple story of Esther, what we see is that God was working in the situation through his people and delivered his people. And remember, that includes all of his people. This isn't just about Esther and Mordecai living in Susa this is about the Jews who went home to Judah and are attempting to rebuild the temple and get God back there and get his presence back. This works to the benefit of all of God's people, this story here. But some of the things that we, can, um, that we can learn from this story here, right? we're moving into the moral section, is that the tension of living in the world and not being of the world is always present. It is always present. I had to practice a lot of discipline in this sermon not to get into this point a lot earlier than I should have. I'll, I'll let you into a little secret. The first time I practiced this sermon, I went for an hour. So, And it was because I got into this point a little bit too early. But now we're here, um, and you might be saying, oh no, he's going to go over time now. But no, we're good, we're good, right? This tension is always, always present because we hear a story last week of Jews who are now free to go back home to Judah and rebuild the temple. And what do they try to do? They try to follow the rules so much so that they end up making really silly decisions. They really end up hurting people when they don't necessarily need to. But then you also have Jews who stay back in, in Susa and other places who are hiding their identity and saying, no, if we, if we come out as Jewish, then that's going to work against us, and so we need to you know, not reveal that we're Jewish just yet. And so you have these two different people groups who are kind of saying complete opposite things, but they are all still God's people. And they are all still trying to find their way in this tension, in a world world that is not friendly to believers, right? They are believers in a world that is not friendly to believers. These, the Jews who went home to Judah, they're just trying to follow the rules. They want the rules. They're like, ah, the rules. We need to follow the rules. We need to dot every I, cross every T, and we'll be good. The Jews over here, they're like, oh, no, I, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> what are you talking about, right? And so you have two very different outlooks on life but they're still both just trying to like, live out their faith in a world that is very hard to live out a faith in. And so this really, really makes decisions very, very difficult. And I want to recall the decision that Mordecai made really quickly. That is one where I don't see a right or wrong answer. In that moment, Mordecai is not saying, I'm not going to bow to Haman, and it's going to cause all of my people to die. That's not what he's saying. The decision is, I see Haman, I see a symbol that goes against my people, and I'm not going to bow to that. That is asking me to disgrace my people, to get rid of my people, to say, I don't care about my God, I don't care about my people. Someone could say, Jeremiah 29, you should have seeked peace. You should have sought after peace in that situation, Mordecai, but I don't think it's that simple. Those are very murky waters. It's a very, there's a lot of gray area there. But also just with the decision to move home or to not move home, someone could very easily say, well, God said he'd be back after 70 years, and guess what? The Persians said we can go back home. That means we go back home. But that's not necessarily a rule, is it? Because someone could very easily say God said to put down roots where we're at and that's what we've done. I have a family here. I have a job here. And it's a very dangerous road to go back home to Judah. I'm not necessarily sure that the rule right now that God is calling me to go back home yet. Right, Judah is still under Persian rule so again, murky, murky waters, a gray area. But what we can know as believers, because I'm sure some of you are saying, yeah, there's some decisions in life that I don't know the answer to. And when I turn to Scripture, there's not necessarily a specific answer that says make this decision right now, right? But what I can tell you is that ultimately God has a plan for his people, and we are invited to participate in that plan. And that plan, at least I believe, boils down to loving those who are placed in front of us. With Mordecai and Esther, if they had made the decision, I'm going to love those placed in front of me in Susa, right? And I think at at one point they kind of did. Esther was kind of placed in the position of like, every Jewish person is now in front of you, Esther. (laughs) The way that you might love them is by, yes, going to the king and pleading for your people. That's a difficult decision to make. But those are the people who were placed in front of her. But there's a plan that exists and that plan is to to love people and to minister to people and to spread the gospel. That is the ultimate plan. And so, sometimes there are decisions that come by that say, listen, this person's placed in front of you and there might not be a clear right or wrong answer in the situation as to how to love them. And that's difficult. That's tough for us. Like, what, what do we do with that? That's a hard question. But I think, spoiler, Jesus is the perfect example of living for God in the world. Now, that might might be kind of an obvious answer and spoiler here, right? And you might be saying, well, that's all well and good, but I'm not Jesus. And I cannot live a perfect life like Jesus did. And you're right. You are correct. And I wish this was a sermon where I could say, this is the hard line answer. If you go do this, you'll be fine in life. But this is more so a sermon that says, We have scripture, we have Jesus, who loved people placed in front of him in a way that we can't even understand sometimes. And we are supposed to be reading that scripture and saying, how did Jesus love this person placed in front of him? And how can I love the people placed in front of me in life? And guess what? Sometimes we're going to disagree on what we see Jesus doing. That's why we have things like the Unity Project to say, we are all believers, and we are all just trying to find our way as believers in a world that is not believer-friendly. And sometimes there's going to be some of us who say, rules, rules matter. Sometimes there's going to be some of us that say, I'm not a Christian, but we all... I mean, there, there is a little bit of a middle ground here, and we should all be trying to meet in the middle and say, no, we need to come together and say, We are believers. We need to love those placed in front of us. And sometimes we're going to disagree, but at the end of the day, we're all on the same team. And Jesus is like the captain of the team, right? We look to him and say, Captain, lead us. Show us how to do this. Lead by example. Show us. And Jesus can be that for us. Now in terms of Next steps. I just kind of want to wrap this all up a little bit, right? Because there's a lot that happens in Esther. And there's a lot that was just talked about, okay? But at the end of the day, we, we are kind of like a team. I have team in my mind now because, like, the state playoffs are starting for basketball, and it's all wild and crazy. But we are kind of like a team. We're all trying to work together to spread the gospel to people. Like, that's the main goal. And if you want to be a part of the, that team... Then I would invite you to give your life to Jesus. Now, this is an invitation. If you'd like to come forward and do that, we'd love to receive you. If you're a part of the, the general team of, of believers, but haven't necessarily joined in, in the team of like serving and, and connecting at this church, then we'd invite you to join a small group or a service team. You know? Virginia's service team that she's got. I love that introduction. Thank you, Virginia. That was that was wonderful. Um, Or if you'd like to find out more information about the team, I keep using the team. I don't know if people don't like that analogy or not. I'm sorry if you don't like it. I know some people don't like it, but I like it. Then you can sign up for a Connect class and you can find out more about our church, about what we believe, and about um, just the movement. um, As you're contemplating those things, I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in our final song.